Our text this morning is Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, the New Testament lesson. This is the fourth and the longest uh, letter addressed to the church. And it goes to what was probably recognized as the least important or significant of the seven cities in Asia Minor. And so in that sense, it's a reminder, because the letter has a, a, a ferocity to it. You probably heard that as it was read. There's a certain fierceness about this letter to Thyatira. But it's a reminder that momentous things, momentous issues, are being wrought in churches in insignificant places. Right? In far out of the way places. In small towns. That this risen Christ who knows you and knows your deeds does not just know mega churches. The great majority of churches that have existed and that still exist in the history of the world, when you take all the data into account, are like us. They aren't mega churches. And so Jesus addresses this church at Thyatira. Thyatira, a leading feature of its life was its numerous trading guilds, something like modern unions. Um, they had a metalworking guild, and they had a guild which did the, was committed to the dyeing of various fabrics. And you might remember from the book of Acts, Lydia. Lydia was converted in Philippi, but she was from Thyatira. And she traded in purple cloth, manufactured and dyed in her home city of Thyatira. And so much of the economic life of the city is organized around these trade guilds. Now this is very important in the scheme of the book. I know it seems boring, perhaps, but this is the way they organized their lives. Each guild had a patron god or goddess. And the life of these guilds were religious in character. Their meetings and their common meals were held in pagan temples. So you can immediately see there's a sort of fuzzy boundary between earning your living and idolatry just by existing in Asia Minor. So we're going to look at the text under the six headings that are there in your, uh, in your outline in the bulletin. There's an address and a commendation. And then the third point is toleration. And the fourth point is repentance and judgment. The fifth point is holding fast, holding fast, and then conquering. So, the risen Christ with the address, uh, he was identified earlier, back in chapter 1, when we saw the vision of Jesus as the Son of Man. And here, he identifies his speech as the words of the Son of God. That's how the text begins. And this term, Son of God, evokes Psalm 2, which was the Old Testament lesson this morning. And there, the Son of God, who is also the Son of David, inherits a throne. He inherits everlasting rule over the nations. Interestingly, this term, Son of God, very common term for us, it occurs once here. This is the only place it occurs in the book of Revelation. 
And the term is, these terms, of course, in the addresses are chosen very carefully. This is a critical term in the sense of it's, it's doing some criticizing. It's a polemical term. It's a combative term. The local guild deities, as well as the Roman emperors, were styled as sons of God or sons of the god Zeus. Or in the case of the Roman emperor, they were viewed as sons of their predecessors who were now deified and thus sons of God. Here's the opening sentence of a letter from Augustus, Caesar Augustus. It starts like this, Emperor Caesar, son of the god Julius. So, when the risen Christ addresses the church at Thyatira and says, I'm the son of God, it's, a, it's an address which has a great deal of political subversive bite. Both the pagan worship and the emperor cult are being challenged and rebuked here by Christ's identification as the Son of God. And this is again one of the functions. We'll see this over and over and over again that Revelation does. It says, it says, do not allow those in political authority the language they want. And this Christ appears with these eyes of flaming fire. He's the divine knower of all hearts. And those eyes are going to pierce. They are going to flash with a kind of fire and indignation in this text. Everything is laid bare before these eyes. He's depicted again as he was earlier in chapter 1 with having feet of burnished bronze. And there is another illusion here because the metalworking guilds in Thyatira were, were known for their polished bronze. They manufactured this bronze for a military fort which was at Thyatira which was a great source of local pride. And so Jesus is, remembering, is reminding them that I have feet of burnished bronze. And my eyes are like flames of fire. And so he's, he's letting them know, if you will, that he's the transfigured Christ. He sits at the right hand until all of his enemies become a footstool for these bronze feet. But here, interestingly, as we shall see, the enemies in view... The enemies in view are inside the church, as they often are historically. And that brings us to the commendation. Their works, which the Lord commends in verse 19, include faith and love and, and service and perseverance. This, this is, church is faithful in its enduring witness. In fact, it's growing in, in service. It says that their latter works exceeded their first. It's interesting, isn't it, that the church is doing more. It's more faithful. It's more expansive. It's stretched out. It's poured out in a greater way than it was five or ten years ago. This is very high praise from the exalted Christ. I know your deeds and your love and your service, and they're greater than they were years ago. Like you haven't put it in cruise control. You're not coasting. But the, the, 
The problem comes into view here with our third point, which is tolerance. Look at verse 20. What Christ has against this church is they tolerated a figure called Jezebel. It's certainly not a real name. It's John's derisive name for a figure who represents a present-day manifestation of the ancient Queen Jezebel. Jezebel could be a code name for a movement, but it's probably a real woman. A self-styled prophetess. But like Babylon, her name is symbolic. She is to Thyatira, whoever she is, what Jezebel was to ancient Israel. That's the point John's making here. And Jezebel was the foreign wife of Ahab. And she imported her pagan religion into Israel. And the Old Testament tells us that she essentially seduced Israel to fornicate with Baal. That's what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. This Jezebel is doing the same sort of thing. What she is, is a local proxy for a figure we'll meet later in the book of Revelation, namely the whore of Babylon. She seduces the saints. Only, so, in her teaching then, and in her practice, what's the significance of Jezebel? It is this, it's that in her teaching and practice, Babylon, Babylon has invaded the church. Now, this church has, has love. It has an array of good deeds. But it's being corrupted, Christ says, by this kind of false tolerance. They tolerate this woman, Jezebel. Notice the issue here is, is, is toleration. Of course, tolerance is a wonderful virtue. But here, it's false tolerance. You know, if we put together some of what we've seen in these letters... We've already seen a church that, that was very good at doctrine, that had doctrinal purity, but couldn't, didn't love properly. Here we have a church which is pretty good at loving and service, but doesn't really care much about doctrine. They tolerate terrible false teaching. Putting the two together is sort of the trick to health in the church. It's what Paul means when he says that you should speak the truth in love. Love and truth, truth and love. But here, they've got the idea of love. You know, Christianity cannot just be reduced to good deeds and service and love. Certainly that's a central part of it. But this church is an example of a, of a community of people that has all of those things and at the same time is provoking the displeasure of the risen Jesus because of their tolerance. So we have to be clear about this. It sounds harsh, but this is the path of love. On certain things, tolerance is utterly destructive of the life of the church. So when it comes to idolatry and immorality, Christianity is completely intolerant. Sane people are intolerant. Nobody, nobody tolerates the possibility that 2 plus 2 might be 11, right? So there is, on certain things, a kind of holy intolerance built into the world. Now, I came across a story recently from a, 
American historian Joseph Ellis, he wrote a book called Founding Fathers, and it's a story of uh, this British uh, Major General, John Andre. He was captured. He was uh, attempting to serve as a British spy in league with Benedict Arnold. And by all accounts, Andre was a model British officer with impeccable character. He had the misfortune of being caught doing his duty. And several members of Washington's staff, including Hamilton, pleaded that Andre's life be spared because they knew him to be a man of good character. And Washington, Washington, who's not, well, he's not perhaps the saint that he's always depicted as, but he's generally a reasonably temperate man, at least in his public duties. Washington dismissed this request as pure sentimentality. He said, if Andre had succeeded in his mission, he could have turned the very tide of the war. And so so Washington's staff comes back to him and says, okay, he would like to be shot like an officer rather than hung as a spy. And Washington rejected that request and said, look, regardless of his personal attractiveness, which I grant, he is no more and no less than a spy. Hang him. And they hung him the next day. Tolerance of evil is lethal in war. And with the Jesus whose eyes flash with flames of fire, whose feet are burnished bronze to subdue his enemies, says to this church, you cannot tolerate false teachers like Jezebel. Now, it's very important to think of the context. Um, Jezebel and her party surely encouraged immorality and idolatry. Now again, immorality and idolatry here unquestionably has, as we've seen, a political cast. In other words, what is Jezebel doing? How is she seducing the church? It seems clear from the context and from the book as a whole that this involves some sort of compromise with the local trade guilds, with emperor worship. So immorality and idolatry are essentially... um, is the language used by the New Testament of worshiping false gods. Worshiping false gods is a kind of spiritual adultery. As we've said before, this might entail actual sexual immorality, but the overriding idea is idolatry. And so, how would Jezebel and her party get a hold, a foothold in the church? Well, generally this happens under the attractive cloak of piety, as many... Modern-day churches do this sort of thing. Nobody stands up and says, yes, of course, we are advocating idolatry. It's the flaming eyes of the risen Christ who make that evaluation, isn't it? The people on the ground in the church may see this completely different. Everybody may love Jezebel. They just had her over for lunch. She bakes for the fellowship meals. But who who could possibly have a problem with Jezebel? Jesus has a problem with her. And by her, I mean, she could even be masculine. She, you know, it, the name is metaphorical. So these movements always laud their tolerance, usually as an expression of the true spiritual inner meaning of the faith. 
And so here the Jezebel party is advocating the legitimacy of attending the feasts of the local trade guilds. Probably some false notion of Christian liberty. After all, Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing. So truly spiritual people can't be harmed by participation in merely civic and patriotic events. After all, the church has to live in the real world or risk economic ostracism. Right? We already saw that the churches in Asia Minor are poor because of this pressure on the guilds to conform. And this economic factor is likely the reason that the teaching of Jezebel is gaining some ground. If you take Jezebel's interpretation, you can keep your job. So, the situation here hasn't risen, as it has, we saw in other churches, to actual imprisonment or even martyrdom. But the situation here is economic compromise and pressure, which can be a threat. And so the fourth point is repentance and judgment. The Lord has been very kind and good and patient, as He always is. He does not will anyone to perish. So we can see in the text that he gives them the gift of time. This indicates that this church has tolerated Jezebel for a good while. But note that the, uh, the divine gift of time here in the text is in the past tense. I have given her time. Right? Jesus does not react. He doesn't fly off the handle. He gives her a lot of time but she doesn't wish to repent of her immorality. Again, immorality here is almost certainly a metaphor for economic idolatry. And so, in verse 22, Jesus, the risen Jesus, the transfigured Jesus, says judgment is now inevitable. And he says it in very biting words. Ironic words. The scene of her sin becomes the scene of judgment. She has seduced the servants of Christ into bed with the pagan cults. Therefore, she herself will be thrown into a sickbed. That's the importance of the sickbed metaphor here. It's not as if Jesus is going to strike her with the flu. It's, 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 it's an ironic, prophetic bit of biting sarcasm. You want to sleep and worship at the other gods' temples, you're going to be thrown into your own sickbed. And her followers still have an opportunity to repent, the text says. So, those who commit adultery with her, the text says, means those who follow her economic advice into illicit compromise with the trade guild worship. Now, you might think, gee, that's a fanciful interpretation of commit adultery with her. But it isn't, given the way the prophets use the metaphor of adultery. And if, and if you doubt this interpretation, you can go read the back half of the book of Revelation, especially chapters 17 and 18. The issue with Babylon and the Roman whore is that the church commits spiritual adultery by submitting to the empire's demands. So the immorality metaphor, while it, again, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but while it might, it probably includes actual immorality, is really a metaphor about compromise with the Roman state. And so, 
There's a call then, which we'll see in chapter 18. You know it. Isaiah actually says it, but it's in, it's in chapter 18. that says to the church, to you and I, come out of Babylon, lest you participate in her sins and share in her plagues. That call goes out in chapter 18 of this book. Well, guess what? It begins right now with separating from the Babylonian prostitutes within the church. The, the, the picture of Babylon in the book of Revelation is a, a, an image of Rome. So real briefly to connect some of this symbolism up now, because I know it's hard to keep, you need a scorecard for this, but the beast is in general the Roman Empire. But Babylon is the city of Rome. The immoral city of Rome. And she is, chapter 17 tells us, the mother, the mother of prostitutes and all the earth's abominations. How's that for an evaluation of the capital city of your empire? And so Jezebel in Thyatira is a local manifestation. She's a daughter prostitute of Rome. She'll be thrown onto a sickbed. And those who follow her will be thrown into what the text calls intense suffering. Literally, the word here is great tribulation. So the great tribulation is already underway in some sectors of the church in 95 AD. And then Jesus says starkly in verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Now, again, this does not mean, this is not a literal woman, and this is not talking about her offspring, her biological offspring. Her children are the same people who commit adultery with her. And the reason for this is that Babylon is the mother of prostitutes. The church itself is depicted as a heavenly mother with children in Revelation chapter 12. And so, Step back from this just a minute. Think of it this way. This is another way to come at the whole book of Revelation. Much of the book is about a, the contrast between these two women, the, church, the bride of Christ and Babylon. What the book of Proverbs calls the, the, the lady wisdom and the woman of folly. And in the end, a person belongs to one or the other woman. There is no third option. A person either belongs to the bridal community of Jesus Christ or they belong to the Babylonian Empire. They belong to some other woman. And so here the text assumes, sadly, that the time for repentance is past and that judgment is certain. And the flaming eyes of Christ mean that he who searches the hearts and mind is now to act in Thyatira. And this judgment that comes on Thyatira, we don't know what form it takes exactly. But the text makes it clear that it's a warning to all the churches. They will know when I execute judgment on Jezebel and her party, her children, those who commit adultery with her. When I act against that church, all the churches, the text says, will know that I am the Lord. You know, some 50 times in the book of Ezekiel, 
in connection with divine judgment, you get this phrase, and they will know that I am the Lord. I mean, this sort of thing gets your attention. All the churches, Jesus says, are going to know, not just Thyatira. When I act in Thyatira, everyone will know. I'm the divine judge. And I will give to them according to their works. So what's the lesson here? It's pretty simple. We've gone a bit far from it, but you've got to remember, they, Jesus started with a commendation. Do the good works. Do your good deeds. Continue to do them, but don't be entangled in the idolatry and in the immorality of the American Babylon, lest you share in her plagues. Or at least be awake to it. Be alert to it. Be discerning. Don't accept the, the language. Don't accept the narrative. The emperor wants to call himself the son of God. We don't let him do that. So the fifth point is holding fast. There's a godly remnant. They haven't capitulated. They haven't learned. Notice the text says they haven't learned what some calls the deep things of Satan. So this is a probably another biting remark from the Son of God. Right? The Jezebel cult probably saw themselves as a spiritual aristocracy, genuinely deep and profound, because they were advocating tolerance and inclusion. Hey, we can't, we can't exclude the, 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 the gods of the, uh, the temple guild and the cults. Their teaching is a parody, then, of what Paul calls the deep things of God. Right? Paul says to you, you should know the deep things of God by the Spirit which is given to you. But Thyatira, but, but Jezebel's cult, which thinks it's deep, is really playing around with the deep things of Satan. And so Christ says to this remnant, I don't place any burden on you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Jesus doesn't say, look, I've got a long list of stuff for you to do. He just says, look, get away from Jezebel and keep doing the stuff you're doing. Hold fast, he says, what you have until I come. Hold fast to the gospel. Christ is coming to judge this church, not just at the end, but in history. Christ has come, he does come, and he shall come again. And he says to you, do, do good. Do good. And hold fast to the gospel. It's really very simple. The church can lose everything. Everything. And if it doesn't lose the gospel, it hasn't lost anything that touches the essence of its life. So the final point's conquering. To the one who conquers or overcomes, does my will to the end, I give authority over the nations. So, conquering here means basically what James said. Visit widows and orphans, do good deeds, and, and keep yourself unstained by the world. That's what it means to conquer in Thyatira. That's what it means to conquer for you and I. And there are two promises given here. The first is rule over the nations. This is such a stunning pro uh, promise that it seems, um, it, it smacks of a kind of pie in the sky, doesn't it? It seems so um, unreal. Jesus says, I'll give him authority over the nations. And there's, then there's a citation from Psalm 2, where the Son of God now, King of all nations, says, I'm going to give you 
authority to sit down with me on my throne, you who conquer, even as it was given to me by my Father. And we participate in this reality, albeit partially, even now. This is why at the beginning of the book, John said that you are already kings and priests with Christ. And in the end, the promise will be fully consummated. The saints will reign with Jesus Christ. And in verse 28, he says, I'll give them the morning star. It's another metaphor for the, our participation in the coming glory and reign in Christ. At the end of the book, Revelation 22, after the coming of the new heavens and the earth is set out, Jesus is called the bright morning star. So the promise entails rule and glory. And again, this is, there's another swipe here at Roman political pretensions because Venus, the morning star, was a symbol of sovereignty in the Roman Empire. Emperors on occasion claimed to be descended from the goddess Venus. Generals built temples dedicated to the star. It was a sign carried on the banners and standards of Roman legions. And so again, Jesus is involved in a kind of political critique of empire. And he says, I'm the only true sovereign. And my beleaguered people will share in my universal empire. This is why all of this language matters. When we say things like Jesus creates a new humanity, a new city, a new race. Because what's at stake in the book of Revelation is political authority, status pretension, empire overreach, the insistence by the empire that if you don't bow, we will kill you. And so why does Jesus come to people like you and me and say, if you overcome, you are going to sit on my throne. You are going to have the bright morning star. You are going to reign with the one who is the Son of God. He's saying to you, you have to re-narrate re the whole political situation that you see. You know, this is something talk radio show hosts won't do for you. They're going to pretend that the only game that can be played is the left-right game on the same spectrum of political analysis. And Jesus comes in and says, no, I'm going to reorder this whole thing. I don't grant the game. I say to you who are being killed that you are, upon being slaughtered, you are now reigning in heaven with the King of Kings and, our and to you who overcome I mean, these are astonishing claims. This is a couple hundred people on the west coast of Asia Minor, far away from the city of Rome and its power. They have no power. They have no influence. They have no clout. They have no authority. This is how we are to think about the church. In the meantime, we have to hold fast to what we have. We have to persevere in love and service. We have to repudiate idolatry and immorality. And this, this is going to include some discernment, right? Some try, trying to unmask the subtle idolatries and the compromises of our own pagan culture. 
We might not always get this right. We might not always even agree with each other. But we have to do it. And in doing that, we have to cultivate a kind of holy intolerance. So he who has an ear, let him hear. With the Spirit of Christ, the glorified Judge says to the churches, Amen.